Hey, before we get started, I have another uh, really exciting event. If you're in or around New York on February 29th of 2020, that's this month. At 9 a.m., there is an open event. I mean, free of cost. Research shows that students benefit from being taught by teachers with similar life experiences who help create positive learning environments and leave a profound impact on students' grades and self-worth. Male students of color make up 43% of the city's public school demographic, while only 8.3% of the entire teacher workforce is made up of Black, Latino, and Asian men. We're going to change that statistic. New York City Men Teach, in collaboration with CS for All, presents the Men of Color Lunch and Learn to bring together male teachers and students of color for a day of computer science activities. Participants will hear from speakers focused on building community, introducing hidden figures in tech, and increasing Black and Latinx representation in CS. This event brought to you by Computer Science for All of New York City a department within New York City Department of Education serving over a million students. Again, it's a free event held by CS for All of New York, February 29th, 2020. To learn more about it, I will put links in the show notes for this episode, but you can also go to CS, the number four, all.nyc and find all of the details about registration and other info. Access to STEM education is access to power. Power is the ability to write the national narrative. It is the distinction between the author and the subject. Being an author of the American story is a far more important proposition than merely gaining access to a career in the technology sector. Captains of the technical sector are reshaping the very mechanisms by which American and global cultures exist. The ability to reinvent basic human transactions with each other and with an evolving array of intelligent systems is power. Access to power is critical in the 21st century. Students of color exist in an era where the very value of their lives is an open public debate. Under these circumstances, the motivation for STEM education cannot be only about employment in the technology sector. The motivation for STEM education is about their gaining access to power. It is about their ability to reshape the national narrative on their own terms. Writes Kamal Bob in his philosophy. I really can't wait for you to meet Kamal. Whether you want to believe it or not, but we know that the formal public education system does not work in America principally for black and brown kids. It doesn't work for poor kids at all. But for sure, it doesn't work for black and brown kids wherever they are. Therefore, as we're trying to address the infrastructure of the public education system with equity in mind on a system that we know a priori doesn't work for the communities of students that we're actually trying to address, What are we actually doing? How are we framing and operationalizing this problem? 
Kamal is a national authority in STEM education. He's a founding senior director of the Constellation Center for Equity in Computing at Georgia Tech. He's an engineer and science and technology policy scholar whose work focuses on the relationship between equity for students and communities of color in the STEM enterprise, large educational systems, and the social and structural conditions that influence contemporary American life. He brings to his current position a wealth of experience as a former program officer at the National Science Foundation. His writing on STEM education and culture has been featured in The Atlantic, Black Enterprise, The Root, Edutopia, and on the Obama White House blog. Oh, and also in his spare time, Kamal is the lead for global diversity strategy at Google. I can't wait for you to meet him. In this episode, we're going to listen to a pretty incredible keynote. Kamal was a speaker at this year's, the sixth annual To Code and Beyond, uh, part of the K-12 initiative at Cornell Tech. If you don't know about Cornell Tech, I invite you to check them out. I will drop their URL in the show notes. This keynote uh, like last year, I had a conversation with Mark Guzdial from University of Michigan, uh, an incredible talk. And what we do, the the amazing folks who throw to Code and Beyond each year help me to interview keynotes at the conference um, after they've spoken and, and let us dig a little bit deeper beyond the talk. So as I did last year, I get to release the keynote here first so that you all get a sense of what was discussed at Tagode and Beyond. And it's a nice intro to Kamal, um, who I am just a huge new fan of. Um, next episode, I'm going to have my interview with Kamal. We will talk more deeply about some of the themes that come up in his talk. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this keynote from the sixth annual to Code and Beyond. My huge, huge thanks to Diane Levitt and the rest of the team at Cornell Tech who helped make this possible. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Diane. Thank you so much. Um, I feel like I know so many of you very, very well, mentors and friends and so on. So it seems like we're just having a little reflective conversation as if we were just in somebody's house. So uh, bear with me for a little bit of the informality of that. I do want to start, though, um, by reflecting. Uh, some colleagues of mine are here from the National Science Foundation. So I was a program officer at the National Science Foundation and a directorate for computer information science and engineering for about three years, two years ago. And while there, uh, there is a program officer named Karen King, uh, who is, uh, she's been a legendary program officer for years. She's been a mentor to many of us. And she, um, passed away Christmas Eve. So we need to make a moment there. She's a dear friend of mine and uh, a soldier for this work. 
So I think as we're talking about what's happening here, I think the, um, the work, the life's work, the commitment that a lot of people have put into this are the foundations upon which uh, we're growing. That said, uh, forgive me for starting as such. I, I got to go to her funeral tomorrow. So in this greater context, here's a couple things that I want to do. Uh, Diane has, as you know, been promoting the uh, relationship between computing as we're going through and computing education and equity and equity and justice and all of those things that are kind of in the world now, we don't really often necessarily reflect on what exactly these things mean. The other thing that's heavy on my mind and heart at the moment, again, is the context in which all of this is taking place. It's possible we're about to go to war with Iran, somewhere far away. And the proximity and our willingness to go and abuse and destroy colored people somewhere far away is not lost on me. And I think that the, the context in which we're operating is analogous to that. Let's not forget that ultimately what we're up against is the racial hierarchy that's laid out in these United States, as Diane alluded to. I want to give you a, a, just a reflection on my interpretation of what that means. So the computing education stuff that we're addressing now is basically coming on the heels of the attempts to integrate engineering in decades previous. So as you well know, that began like in the late 70s, early 80s, they were saying we have to have a diverse technical workforce and engineering was reigning supreme at the time. The American Society of Engineering Education, the National Action Council for um, Minorities in Engineering, the National Society of Black Engineers, all of those things, SWE, SHIP, all of them, all of that was born. That was groundswell to try to get engineering to be the thing that would democratize, remember those words? Democratize the technical infrastructure as the United States move forward. At the street level, people talked about it in the context of trying to make sure that communities of color had access to this particular uh, part of the economic sector because it was viable for individuals and also because engineering was so important to the structure of the way that we actually conduct our lives. Remember all those arguments. Central to that was mathematics. It was coincident with the math reformation movement. You remember that? We were trying to make sure that everybody had access to adequate mathematics education. Hence, the math societies and all of them were trying to figure out in public schools, how do we make sure that everybody has adequate, rigorous mathematics that will enable them to get into the engineering spectrum thereafter school? I don't need to tell you that that mathematics challenge has been a colossal failure. In Georgia, where I live, the percent of black boys who are proficient in algebra in the ninth grade is 8%. 8%. If we go around all the cities, the major urban centers where the, the, the economic engines are driven by the tech infrastructure that we're talking about, it's all largely the same. In the South, of course, it's worth, worse for obvious reasons, but. <laughs> 
the story is not much different. So what is it that we're up against here? Why is it that we think that this computing education reformation movement is going to work where the mathematics movement failed? Why is it that we think that this particular tech sector is somehow more sexy than the engineering was 30 years ago? That somehow the driving force of this moment is going to be materially different than it was 30 years ago, just because the topic is different, the subject is different. But here's some consistencies that aren't different. These uh, conceptions of diversity, and we don't say integration, we say diversity. But those two things are not the same. So you can be highly diverse and stunningly segregated at the same time. I grew up in New York. I went to school in Park Slope in the early 70s when they still have black people to live there. <laughs> exactly, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. I went to 282 where the black kids went and the white kids went to 321. Now the white kids are, both of them don't have black people anywhere. Just saying. And in Atlanta where I currently live, there are uh, 11 regular traditional public high schools. Eight of them don't have a single white student in them. Not one. If they put up a sign that said, this school is for blacks only, it would be appropriate. And that's today. And these are things that I've said before. This is not in 1955 or 53 or sometime ridiculous in the past. This is today. That data comes from October of 2019. So we have stunning segregation that's going on. And New York, you know, you know that in your schools that's the truth. It's all in the papers. The kids themselves are starting to revolt. They're like, yo, this doesn't make any sense. How is it that if we're trying to integrate the schools here, there's revolt? So that marginalized concept, we talk about it, as a friend of mine says, in the passive voice. Black and Hispanic students, Latinx students are marginalized. They're underrepresented. They're at risk. And being at NSF, <laughs> uh, my colleagues know that when we're trying to fund faculty to address these issues, the first paragraphs are all the same. We want to address the underrepresentation of said colored people and to make sure that they are not at risk, marginalized, underrepresented, and so on. So therefore, we want to increase their population from X to Y and we want to have their self-advocacy be blah, 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 blah. Like, we could give you the paragraph. They're all the same. But it's passive. Who is marginalizing those people? Somebody's doing it to them. They don't go off and sit in the margin because that's where they want to be. I don't choose to turn left and say, there's the margin, let me go sit there. That's not how it happens. They're being marginalized. It's an active process. The system is doing it. The advisors are doing it. The counselors are doing it. The neighborhoods are doing it. It's a process that's actively taking place. So that segregation that we're talking about, and if we go from school to school, even in schools that are themselves diverse and they market themselves as such, we also know that within those schools, they're stunningly segregated too. My own daughter's school, which I've said this in public before, she goes to the Maynard Holbrook Jackson Public High School in Atlanta. And for those of you who don't know, Maynard Holbrook Jackson was the first black mayor in Atlanta, so he's a big deal. But my other philosophy, crass though it may be, is that if you go to school named after famous black people, you're in trouble. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Benjamin Banneker, Charles Drew, whatever. Any school that's named after famous black people is going to be trouble. Just like Martin Luther King Way, wherever it is, it's dangerous. 
in that school that she goes to. There are 1,251 students total. There are about 150 white kids. Almost all of them are in the International Baccalaureate program. That's the marquee program of the school, almost all of them. And I'm like, yo, none of y'all have special ed needs? How is that happening? They're not equally distributed according to their application and according to their aptitude. Somehow there's a correlation between white and international baccalaureate, really? And then when you're thinking about how that spans out, and I'm gonna to toggle back and forth a little bit between Atlanta and New York. Forgive the way I began, but I'm just mad these days. So a couple years ago, as you well know, y'all in New Yorkers, when they had the big thing about Stuyvesant, Atlanta Public Schools has 52,000 students in it, totally. As you well know, New York City has 1.1 million, 74,000 eighth graders. We only have 52,000 students in our whole system. Y'all got 74,000 eighth graders. 20,000 of those eighth graders are black. And how many got in the Stuyvesant? Seven. We could sit them all at this table right here with room. And that's the marquee public tested high school in America, seven. And they manufacture black people in Brooklyn. I'm saying. And that was it. After all this effort, after all this groundswell, after all this talk about equity, seven. And I'm not at all saying that the highest and the most elite and the 1% is the only way to go. I'm not saying that. But somehow, that is access to the higher education portal that gets you into the public strata of the tech sector that is actually driving the conversation. I can tell you numbers of those same sets of students from Stuyvesant, Brooklyn Tech, Thomas Jefferson in DC, et cetera, who are working at places like Google. Somehow those things are correlated. So access to the most elite portals into which we get to the tech sector that is really driving the public discourse is elite. Of course, not everybody by definition will be, but the stratification that I'm talking about restricts access to those things that are the most correlated with the highest achieving places in American society. So then what is it that we're really after? And how is it acceptable that in a city that's always heralding itself as being so diverse and internationally this, that, and the third thing, whatever, in the most elite sectors, there aren't any black people. And then you're talking about all this gender stuff, you well know that that's white women. In the Google space, for example, in the tech space, when they talk about gender parity and gender, it's constantly gender, 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 gender. Because we know if we start putting up the facts about black people, there's nothing to say. And we know that if we go with this intersectional, intersectional word that we're talking about, then it gets fuzzy. Just like the women's movement itself, it started to fracture when the black women and the Hispanic women started to rise up against the white women and it all became fuzzy. It's the same thing. So women, if we wanna be sensitive to it, women of color ultimately have to choose race because these programs that are designed for gender don't necessarily benefit them in the same way that it does white women. That's what we're up against. I wanted to unpack some of what Diane was just alluding to. The systems that we're actually trying to address are those. And I wanna restate the fact that I said it's active. It's happening to people. You don't just by virtue of who you are just end up in some particular place. You're pushed there, either by residential organization, and then people will say, well, let's just class, and because you can't afford to do this, that, and the third thing, that's why you live in a particular neighborhood, whatever, that's cowardice. 
I don't believe in that at all. Of course, money gives you access to do whatever it is that you want to do. But that's not the same thing as saying that I don't want these kids in my class with my kid. And because I have the demographic and I have the, uh, the kind of um, advocacy power, I'm going to make sure that these teachers make sure that those kids are not in my class or not in my school or not in my program. Let me give you another example of how that works. I was the board chair of a public charter school in Atlanta. And this Jackson High School that I'm talking about where my daughter currently goes, it's in that cluster. <coughs> I wanted to make, and because I'm, you know, they treat me as like, oh, this is Dr. Bob, and he's fancy, and he's Georgia Tech, and he's Google, and whatever, whatever. So they were like, oh, well, certainly this has to be a STEM cluster, because STEM is the thing that will get you into heaven these days. <laughs> and I fundamentally disagree. Notwithstanding what I do, I'm like, this STEM thing, whatever, it's a farce. All we need is education. And I thought that the, West, the principal way to do that was to make the whole cluster an international baccalaureate cluster. So forget all the STEM business. I mean, I know who y'all are, but whatever, me too. I, you know, I did engineering, I went to Cal, I'm fancy also, so I can say what I want. So in this, in this cluster, they're badgering me, make it a STEM cluster, STEM, 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 STEM. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. Our kids need to have an international baccalaureate experience so that they can see the world too, so they can come back from Israel and talk about what's going on at Cornell Tech and have some concept of the relationship between what's going on here and what's going on there. STEM doesn't do that, particularly the way we've kind of trivialized it and made it pedestrian. So the whole thing is to go get a job. We're training kids, we're not educating them. So what I'm saying is, yo, let's do this international baccalaureate program in this cluster. And of course the cluster reflects the whole city, so it's crazy segregated, right? Here was the resistance that I got. It was crazy. And I, I, I mean, I was a little naive. I mean, you could tell how I am. But in the ways that I was approaching this, I was a bit naive. Because in Atlanta, it's progressive. And in this particular neighborhood, Obama signs all over the place, LGBTQ signs, Black Lives Matter, all that. <laughs> so we get in there, and the white community in this particular neighborhood was like, we do not want an international baccalaureate cluster. We want an international baccalaureate program. So I was like, well, what's the difference? This is my naivete. What's the difference? The one white school where the white kids go, they wanted that to be the singular program trajectory into the IB program. And I experienced this myself. This is not secondhand information. I was being told this. And the rationale was, people need options. They need choice. I was like, oh shit, I heard that school choice thing before. <laughs> mm. So here's what happened. They fought and they got it. And what has then happened subsequent to that decision is that the IB program has become 100% white kids. Because it's a program. It was active. The reason that those black kids are not getting access to it is because it was an active decision by the parents of this particular school to make sure that that program was not ubiquitously available for everybody that's in the school, in the school cluster. That's what happened. The resources allocated to that program in that school, K through eight, to prepare them for the high school IB programs, the, middle school, the primary years and the middle school years in the diploma program, was disproportionately higher to them as it was to everybody else for obvious reasons, because it was a program that they had at that school. That's how it becomes active. And so then where do we sit in all of that? 
Let's step back now for a moment. <clears throat> I think that when we're talking about this particular problem, as uncomfortable as it may be, I mean, those, those words, race and discomfort, they always go together, whatever, I'm not scared. But I think the reality is that that's what we're contending with. But my step back is to say, let's think about the national strategy that we're using now to address computer science education itself. I wanted to lay all that out first because I think that's the things that we're ultimately up against. However smiley and nice people may or may not be, they don't want their kids to go to school with colored kids. That's a fact, and we'll argue all day. As uncomfortable as that may be. But let's just reflect on that for a moment. Just think about your own kids, your own lives. How integrated is it actually? I saw that house pop up on your screen. I bet you don't have any black neighbors in that, in that neighborhood. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know, but I'm just speculating. So the, the reality is if we think about how it actually plays out. Ultimately, we all said we want the best for our children. Obviously, we do. But how does that pattern manifest itself against the objectives that we have for ubiquitous democratic computing science education in the country? Those two things tend to be at odds. So we have a basic philosophical discordance between our personal objectives and our collective objectives. And when that plays out, more often than not, obviously your personal objectives win out. Because you're like, yo, this is for my kids. I'm gonna do what I gotta do for these others, but I'm protecting my own. And I'm not criticizing that, that's a natural instinct. But that's the reality of what we're up against. So now with the step back, here's this. The step back says, <clears throat> and this is where I got mentorship. Again, forgive me for getting a little aside of myself with Karen. We were thinking about, well, what, is, what are national institutions' responsibility in trying to build this infrastructure? So during the Obama administration, <laughs> I just want to say it again. During the Obama administration, <laughs> Just a third time for my pleasure. <laughs> anyway, so during that administration, when they talked about CS for All, when it was born and so on, so Mark and Barb and so on, like were instrumental in getting all that stuff happen. It was a decades long process. But the culminating event was basically that the charge came to the United States to build computing infrastructure and public education for everybody. 50 million people, students, 3 million teachers, 50 million students. The public education system, in my view, is one of the singularly most important public artifacts in American history. The whole point is to fuel a viable democracy. That's what public education is for. And so he charged it going into the next century. We're trying to get this computing thing spread out. Obviously, we don't have any background with it. It's a new subject and so on. It's just kind of a, an evolutionary moment in public education in America and the world more broadly. So then he says, public school teachers, Go forth and make it happen. Department of Education, go forth and make it happen. The governors, the mayors, Bloomberg, all of them making mandates left and right. Graduation requirements, all that. And in some instances, of course, public policy has to be in advance of the capacity of the policies of the institutions over which those policies govern to make them do the things that they're actually advocating for. So when they make those mandates, like they did in the Bush administration with no child left behind, and everybody was like, well, this is an unfunded mandate, blah, 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 blah. Okay, whatever, but he put the charge out there. I'm not mad at him for doing that. So here we are with this computing thing now, <clears throat> which says increasingly as states go, and we have some of the leading experts on how the state's policies are working, 
they're increasingly making graduation requirements and course requirements and so on for computing education. So that leaves us with the problem that you all know well and better than me. What do we do with the teaching infrastructure and capacity to meet the increasing demand for deploying this particular subject, for which we have limited historical precedent, and we are also dealing with a structure itself that's under supreme duress. So let me focus on that now just for a moment. Just thinking about the logic of what we're doing. We're asking the public school teaching workforce in the United States to take on a supremely cognitive, difficult challenge in a sector where they are the least professionalized, the most under professional stress, and I would argue taxed with far beyond their actual professional mandate in ways that are unique in American life. What does that actually mean in practice? It means that over the last couple, uh, 24 months or so, maybe 11 states, public school teachers are on strike in America. I know you all know, but let me just say it. What does that mean? That means that the people that we're asking to do this highly difficult thing are battling for their personal lives. Again, what's the relationship between the institutional objectives and the personal commitments of the things that you have to do to take care of your life and family and personal effects? On strike. Recently, I mean, New York people can't go on strike because if New York City public schools go on strike, we got hungry kids all over the place. It's almost a moral violation in New York. But LA went on strike, 500,000 students, almost 60% of them are Latinx. Oakland went on strike, Colorado was on strike, Detroit, they just closed the whole place. Chicago was on strike. Let's think about where these places are. These are the central urban hubs where, this, where the, the primary arguments about what diversity in the tech sector actually play out. Chicago, Google is there in spades with everybody else. Austin, Apple, Google, all of them, they're all down there. Those school districts are totally segregated. LA, where they're trying to build the LA Silicon Valley and Playa Vista and all that. 500,000 students can't go to school, but yet we're building bigger tech campuses down there at the same time. So what does that mean? That means that those kids are looking at the construction and knowing that that's not for them. It's clear, they can see it, and they're not in school, so they got all day to look at it. I mean, I wanna make jokes about it. what I'm saying is that the very structure that we're tasked with, the, with, that we're giving the task of the responsibility to deploy this education is the one that's least able to deploy it. So what does that leave us? It leaves us working in the margins. These margins are no joke. So what happens in the margins now? That's where these kinds of programs come in, like we saw this morning, as effective as they are, the three or 500 students, it's 1.1 million students in the, U in, this, in the New York City public school system. So yes, of course, that program is effective, but ultimately, what are we doing? We've been forced into the margin. All of the investments that we're after, we did this at NSF for years. We're spending money to try to get a couple kids in some program to do something ancillary to their core educational disciplines because we know that their core educational discipline is weak. So we're gonna complement it with this other thing. 
we're going to give them some tertiary or complementary or secondary educational experience so that they can do this, this, that, and the third thing, and then hope and pray that ultimately they'll win. But the way that re re relates back now to this equity problem is this, and I'll stop so we can talk, is that we know, whether you want to believe it or not, but we know that the formal public education system does not work in America principally for black and brown kids. It doesn't work for poor kids at all. But for sure, it doesn't work for black and brown kids wherever they are. Therefore, as we're trying to address the infrastructure of the public education system with equity in mind on a system that we know a priori doesn't work for the communities of students that we're actually trying to address, what are we actually doing? How are we framing and operationalizing this problem? And if we think that somehow going through this alternative route, and here's my bias, let me say it clearly. I know that we have, I have colleagues and friends who think that the regular formal public education system and college and all that is outdated. I get it. That's a discussion into and of itself. My bias, of course, like everybody else, is because I went through that formal system and I won, I'm like, yo, it's important. And I also don't like the idea that let's experiment on an alternative educational pathway. Let's experiment with these black and brown kids and see what happens. But meanwhile, the white people, are, they're cheating. Lori, whatever her name is, to get her kids into UCLA. So once she's ready, risking life to, and limb to go to jail to get her kids in there, that tells you how important it is. So don't tell me it's OK for my kids to just go off and get some certificate when you go going to jail to get your kid in UCLA. The logic doesn't make sense. I can see. You know what I mean? Let's just think about it. So coming back to what this equity thing means is that if we know at the outset that the public education system itself fundamentally doesn't work for the students who we are most concerned about, we have an array of programs that are effective in their own right. They do the things that they're designed to do. Hence, we saw this morning. What is our responsibility to the formal system upon which all of these kids are singularly and solely dependent on their future. What is our responsibility to that? Corporations typically say that that's beyond our purview. We can't mess with departments of education because they're notoriously difficult, and they're Byzantine, and they're hard, and they're blah, blah, blah. OK, I get it. And they are. All of, all of that is true. But what? So therefore, we have the little summer camps. We do it at Georgia Tech. We have the little, you know, five, a week-long program for $500, of course. Week-long program, you come, you do your STEM stuff. And they're like, oh, this is great. They put it on their resumes. Speaking about students' resumes, they put it on their resumes. Oh, I did, you know, the coding camp at Georgia Tech and blah, blah, blah. And then they come in and apply and do whatever they want to do. But most of the kids who do that come from schools that are truth. They come from households whose parents know that when Georgia Tech releases that thing, you have about 50 minutes to get your application and otherwise it's sold out. So if you so-and-so living over such and such, you don't even know. So we know that the programs that we do are already skewed to those, those students who are already privileged. We already know. I mean, let's just, let's just say it out loud. So what I would leave you with is the following. I think that our responsibility here, and I've been told in these kind of things, we're supposed to be aspirational. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
whatever. I don't know. I really don't know how it's going to turn out. But my feeling is the following. That our, resp our collective responsibility is clearly, I think that we're part of the choir, obviously. I think our commitment to education is one that's sacrosanct. I think that we have to be careful of not being kind of constrained by the process and the institution that we're in and reflect on the purpose of education itself. Our education is supposed to arm us with the critical tools to attack the systems that we think constrain us. So we can't just be pawns in this process. The stakes are too high. The reason that I was talking about Iran in the beginning is because I'm afraid of that. And it, sometimes, it seems like we just march down this road without being critical. We've been trained and not educated. I think that's our charge. I don't have a solution for sure, none of us do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're trapped. It does mean that we have an opportunity to frame a problem. And you remember when they were talking about this uh, 21st century skills, we're a quarter way through the 21st century already. And we got jokers who can't add. So whatever. Let's think about what our responsibility is. That's the final charge. That's the discussion. I'm going to end there, but I want to caveat with this little appendix because it's on my mind and I want to share it with you anyway. This is like public discourse. <laughs> Since Diane brought me up and it was cold as shit yesterday, I'm like, yo, I'm going to say what I want. So, <laughs> and I forgot my coat. So I, I, have this, I have this challenge. It's related. It's related. In the, in the Google world, for example, all these tech companies are the same, but I know the data from the Google people anyway. Hope I keep my job. The, since we've been talking about this computing stuff, part of the generative process of all of this, this is just discussion fodder. Uh, part of the generative process of all this has been, as you know, the big fancy tech companies were saying that they don't have enough women, they don't have enough black people, Latinx, et cetera, remember? Like in, two, in the early 2000s. The only two materially significant changes that have happened. As was pointed out by the dean, the proportion of women has gone through the roof. Obviously, there are ceilings within those companies that are soon to be broken, I think. But the, the, the kind of thrust of improving the proportion of women has gained steam all across the sector. <clears throat> the only other thing that has been significant is that the proportion of white tech workers in that sector has dropped, and the proportion of Asian tech workers in that sector has increased. In some of the individual companies, as much as 10% in five years. The black and brown people about whom we were making all this noise, it's still noise at the bottom. You know, one and three fifteenths percent and whatever. I, we had a colleague from the paper, you know, in the New York Times every year they come out and they critique the diversity annual reports. Well, Google and uh, Apple has raised their rates from 1.238 to 1.9, whatever. Like, whatever. <laughs> but the big thing is that the fraction of white tech folks is going, is plummeting, and Asian tech folks is going up. And please trust your instincts with me. I'm not trying to be oppositional and set people against each other. Please, please trust your instincts. But what I am saying is that in this climate, that is fodder for a backlash. Because now, if you look at places like Georgia Tech, for example, where in 2017 was the first time that we have more Asian undergraduate students in the College of Computing than white students ever, and it's never going back, in an environment where we're feeling free to demonize, evilize, devilize people who are just from China or wherever they're from, 
That is fodder for a backlash. What's happening coincident with that? Part of the reason that Laurie and her friends are cheating and scandalizing the meritocratic system to get their kids into UCLA is because their kids can't compete with some of these Asian students on the SATs. We see it at Georgia Tech. So what has been the institutional response to that? And this is where I'm actually going to leave you. Institutions can be courageous and say, you know what? We don't need SAT anymore. Black people, of course, are like, what? <laughs> We've been talking this talk for years. And y'all were like, no, we have to have meritocratic systems and standards and blah, blah, blah. Y'all trying to get in just because of race and whatever, whatever. But now it's white kids are like, well, you know what? <laughs> there might be something to what you're saying. But you know what that strikes me as? Institutional courage when they feel like doing something. 15 years ago, you'd have been like, the college board got the whole higher education system on lock. That's a constraint that we just have to operate under. But now the white kids are under threat. You know, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Systems can change. Let's think about the ecosystem here. So what that provides to me is the hope. Unfortunately, we had to arrive at it that way, but whatever, it's America. But what that says, though, is that you can have large-scale institutional changes because of social problems that you're trying to address. However equitably, fairly, justifiably you're framing those problems, that's our charge. It's clear that there can be a response. That's our charge. That's our hope. I'll leave you with that. Let's talk. So great talk, but tell us what you are trying to do at Georgia Tech. What's the Constellation Center working on? Well, since you helped build it, you well know. So thank you for the question. <laughs> Not even like, let's feed me a question. Oops. <laughs> uh, so Georgia Tech, uh, well, those, for those of you who don't know, Barb Erickson and Mark Guzdow are like mentors to a lot of us. Uh, so they've been at Georgia Tech forever. Uh, but what the Constellation Center uh, for Equity and Computing at Tech is born out of a couple things. So one is the previous president, um, Bud Peterson, charged the university with reconsidering what our role is as a public institution serving the public. So increasingly, as you know, Georgia Tech is very elite. And that, that means, almost by definition, we're necessarily serving the public more broadly. So the Constellation Center, uh, with the new dean, Charles Isbell, and the previous dean, uh, Zvi Galil, uh, under their leadership, and certainly with the insights uh, and contributions of Barb and Mark. The point, the hypothesis there is that if we're going to change the structural capacity it's, it's, uh, of, the pu of public education to deliver computing education, one is I don't think that the logic holds that teacher professional development in the end will be sufficient on its own. Uh, particularly when you're dealing with a corpus of people who don't on their own have rigorous computing education training themselves. So what we're trying to do is to offer a hybrid infrastructure. Some of this is not novel, but executing it is really difficult, as you well know. But the, hybrid, the hybridity is that we can offer kind of the AP sequence of APCSP and APCSA virtually with the facilitation of the teacher of record in the school. The reason that the teacher of record is so important for all the reasons, as you well know, that's where the relationship is, the pedagogical expertise, the trust, the, the commitment to winning, and so on, comes from that person. 
And then the content is something that we can provide. The challenge there, uh, and, and I don't want to prolong this, but the, 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 the kind of epistemological questions that we're asking is whether or not that content is fully self-contained. Is it a course into and of itself and the teacher is just kind of facilitating? Or is it a series of resources that the teacher is actually the guide but is drawing on the resources as they uh, are necessary? So we have NSF funds and so on like everybody else does to try to understand that. And then the other are the, sub well, the more substantive things about what is the structure in the school that is enabling or retarding the participation of particular groups of students from wanting to get in these classes in the first place. So that's what the Constellation Center uh, is about. Please. Hi, thank you. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say, um, as somebody with five African-American kids who attend public, private, special ed, general ed, um, God bless the diversity and equity people. I personally don't have the tolerance to put in this kind of emotional labor, and I definitely see firsthand how people walk out the room, even while there's like big signs about inclusion and how great we are. So I really appreciate, because um, I could never do what you're doing. Um, and then the question that I had is just when you were talking about like the genesis of public education, I was really thinking about like the Reconstruction era and the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau and thinking about how the only permanent institution um, that that was said to create was public education. And thinking about Eric Foner's reconstruction where he shows the diary of the wives of um, white northern abolitionists who come to displace uh, the black teachers who had begun setting up their own schools um, and who were so confused by like, why do these black people want to teach themselves? They didn't go to college. Um, and thinking about how do we broaden the frame when we're talking about equity to include the ways in which like epistemic diversity is being displaced and understanding how even like white Americans are getting a mediocre education, which I don't think people always understand, like thinking about Cornell Tech being established with no African-American faculty and not how that just is an access question, but is also, you know, everybody is losing out because how do you innovate without understanding the social context in which technologies are situated in? So I don't know if that makes sense, but that was my question. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that the larger systemic and historical narrative that you raise is always important. I think it's always important to be cognizant of the inertia that we're up against. So trying to, for example, I think that the school choice debate, for example, uh, I think that that took place without real cognizance of the history of the relationship between individual schools and communities, much to what you allude to, particularly for communities where the teachers had to be there for segregation reasons and wanted to be there for family reasons, for community reasons. So when you're saying, well, you can just choose to go wherever you want, it overlooks the fact that there's a, a cohesion in these communities that's viable, meaningful, and it's part of the whole, uh, the whole fundamental premise of HBCUs, et cetera. So I think being cognizant of those things is important. I think the cognition of that, uh, against the, the cognizance of that against the individual places like Cornell Tech, for example, I think that requires individual awareness. If you want to build an institution that reflects the values that you profess, you have to actually do it. And I think that one of the challenges that we have more broadly, and this is probably why you tend to just opt out for emotional reasons, and I completely get it, is that the this whole diversity and equity stuff or whatever, it's, it's marketing now. You put up the, I mean, not to be critical, where's Diane? I mean, we, we, you know, we friends, you know what I'm saying? But 
all these videos are the same. It's like some kind of light-skinned girl with nice teeth and she's pretty and you know what I mean? That they're all similar. And what, what they don't do is talk about the action. Why is it that this is necessary? We don't see the counter narratives. And that part takes courage because that's where the pushback comes. The reason that some of these processes are there is because of real discriminatory practices that people don't want to acknowledge. And because we're quieting those things down, then we get this kind of sanitized version of what diversity means. We don't interrogate the relationship between diversity and integration in a meaningful way. We just kind of throw up all these statistics without really pushing in on what's actually happening in here. And that's the part where I think we have a responsibility to do that. Building institutions, building classrooms, building uh, advising infrastructural programs, those are things that we can really take out of this discussion into our specific roles and make the manifestation real. Uh, so first of all, I just want to say, wow. <laughs> wow, back at you. Okay. <laughs> Um, I want to push back on one thing that you said and then double down on something else. Uh, uh, you, you made the statement that uh, women in the tech industry are just booming. Uh, I, just want to, I just want to push back on that. Uh, the numbers are 26% of the tech workers are women and 58% of the workforce in general. And I think 26% is baloney. Uh, because you're sweeping in project managers and program managers and all these uh, folks that tend to be women. Uh, those are not tech jobs. I think the number is closer to 15%. So uh, I'm not saying you're not right about uh, women of color and so on, but we got a long way to go uh, with respect to women in the tech industry. Uh, your point about this um, uh, new drumbeat that it's not important to get a college degree, I think is really dangerous. I think it's bullshit. Uh, as you said, you know, it's good for other kids not to get a college degree or community college is enough or certificate is enough. We're going to hire you out of high school, baloney. And, and it's the big tech companies that are busy saying this. And I think it's a really dangerous message. So uh, I, I'm wondering what you think we can do in order to sort of turn that message around and stop that drumbeat because I think it's dangerous. Well, I appreciate it. And so for the first part, I think that we have to be careful of not being comparative with our relative misery. <laughs> so to me, your 26% is like, damn, really? I got like one. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so it's not a pushback at all. Uh, to the second point that you raised, though, um, I think it's delicate. I think that that argument is complicated. So I have a particular bias towards the traditional route, for sure but I also recognize that it is my bias. I also think that there is reality and justifiable reasoning to saying to someone who doesn't necessarily want to go to college or have the means or the path to get to college that they ought to have a very robust experiential and educational pathway too. And that is fair, it's reasonable. It's the whole premise of like the German vocational education system. Like you don't necessarily have to go to the universities, you can go and do this other thing. The challenge with it is that we have to be careful not to make it kind of a dichotomous distinction. And it shouldn't correlate with race. It shouldn't be that all the black and brown kids go get the certificate and all the white kids who are rich go off and get the actual education. I mean, it's easy to say that, but I think in terms of having a public dialogue about it, we have to, we have to be sensitive to the, the reasonable outcomes and expectations that justify both sides. 
And I feel, like I said very strongly, just to be clear, I feel very strongly that for people whose children and they themselves, like me, have gone through this whole route, I think it undermines my own argument if I'm saying to other people, you don't have to do this. But I got the best education on the planet. And then I'm telling you, go get a certificate and good luck and Godspeed. Like, it, just, it doesn't make sense on its face. And there is where also the reality becomes even more complicated because the messenger is not necessarily undermining the message. Because the message may in fact be true. But because it's coming from me who went to Berkeley and Georgia Tech and PhD and blah, 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 somehow it's invalid. So that is a sensitive argument, but I think that if we just make it carefully and discuss it fully and have rigorous uh, certification processes and alternative routes that are actually rigorous, perhaps driven by the places that will fully employ those people, lead, let it lead with them so that we don't just say, go get your certificate, and then like all these ITT tech and all them stupid-ass schools, you're just out there with debt and no job. So you lead it from the end where you have some assurances that what we're going to provide you is something that's actually reasonable into the outcome that we're expecting you to have. Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks for a really, I thought, uh, really profound and brilliant talk. I thought it was, it was wonderful. Um, yeah, I wanted to just follow up a little bit on Khadija's question re regarding um, epistemic diversity in particular. And, um, and I want to just illustrate that with two examples, you know, how it creates limitations to inclusion and in creating the kind of institutions that you're talking about. So, you know, in particular, in like technical institutions like Cornell Tech, you know, I think there's a real resistance to people doing critical work and particularly methodologically interpretive or qualitative work, you know, work they in various ways and with a long history characterize as being less rigorous or less valid in the academy. So that, you know, that's one form of epistemic, I would say, prejudice that, that manifests in the academy. And also, if you look at K through 12, you know, I find in public education, there's just all this emphasis on coding as a material practice and all of these guidelines that are emerging around CS education and conformance with those kinds of guidelines, where meanwhile, in private schools, I'm seeing lots of very interesting uh, explorations of the applications of technology, you know, in particular, in areas like media or user experience, and actually using technology to do very powerful things, as opposed to just building these little things inside of the machine. So, you know, what, do you have a comment on that? <clears throat> well, I, I think you're just providing uh, kind of affirmation of the evidence of how the structural inequity works. Uh, we were just having this discussion the other day, um, yesterday actually, about the experimentation tends to happen on the backs of the students who are most desperate. And there's an ethical problem with that insofar as you can't use uh, pedagogical experimentation on students who are rich, wealthy, and coming from these schools that work very well and expect the outcomes to be translatable to schools that are going through hell. And so the reason I think that some of the more robust experimentation with the applications of technology and the, the furtherance of social discourse around the utility of technology itself is capable in these more robust schools is because the foundation itself is more sound. That to me is the manifestation and the articulation of privilege itself. I don't gotta worry about sending you to math class 15 times a day, so therefore I can now go and tell you how ethical uh, AI works. We can have a discussion about that in peace and sanctity and tranquility. You know what I mean? So I think that what you're pointing out is ultimately that. It is ultimately unfairly, albeit, it's the responsibility of our work in these uh, ancillary programs to be more aspirational, to expect more 
of the students and the communities in which we operate to assume understanding of the nature of the problem. I think part of the reason that some of those programs that you're talking about in the regular schools are so tactical is because it's based on the assumption that the students and the communities themselves can't be aspirational. So we, we, we're lowering our expectations, and then our pedagogies and our practices are aligned with those expectations. I mean, it's standard stuff. So that doesn't mean that limited resources is a constraint, but it does mean that our intellectual aspirations have to be bigger. The constraints are things that are, take time to deal with and all that. Uh, and I'll follow just quickly, uh, that in my daughter's school, she went from, we've had this conversation before, she went from Paideia in Atlanta. This, she went to, it's a long story, but she ended up going to this private school with all these white kids. And again, trust your instincts. I'm not being crass. I'm just getting to the point. So she went to this private school with all these white kids, right? It was a standard tax that black people with privilege have the options to make. So we can sit back and contemplate. Well, I think, and this is what black people in Atlanta will say, yo, if I send my kids to public school, that's like child abuse. Child abuse to send them to regular public schools. So then they got options, like, yo, if I want to send them to private schools with the, with the black kids, I'll send them to Woodward. And if I want to send them to white kids who have like left-leaning tendencies, I'll send them to Paideia. If I want to send them to the right-wing old school, conservative, South Republican, ridiculous people, I'll send them to these other schools. I'm just telling you how we actually talk. <laughs> I'm sharing. So she went to the left-wing white people school. And she hated it. She absolutely hated it. In the middle school, she was one of seven black children in the entire middle school. So she's coming to me, and you can imagine how I'm talking to you, how we actually talk at home. So she's like, yo, this doesn't make any sense. You're talking all this black power, this is that. And the third thing, you send me to school with all these white kids. I don't even got any black friends. How does that work? And then I was critiquing the way she talked, because I'm like, yo, don't talk like that when you're out in public with me. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. And like, da -da -da. oh hell no, don't do it. So what happened? At that school, in her own words, when she chose to go to regular public high school, she made the distinction herself. And she said that when you're at that school, this is what we were just talking about the other day, when you're at that school, I get to be white, be free, and read. That was her summation of that experience. And to me, that's the premise of what you're talking about. They had the space to engage in erudition. And now she's over here at Maynard Jackson, you gotta walk through a damn metal detector, everybody's on the wall, the teachers think that there's no relationship between subject and verb when you're speaking to children. Those two things are intimately related. Your subjects and the verbs agree when you're speaking to children. And so now she sees it herself, that the constraints on her education, and I feel like I'm committing a sin, but I don't, I mean, this is the, this is the personal tax. The relationship between what we're talking about is personal because I don't know what the best thing to do is. I know that what she's getting at this school is not as good as she would get at this other school, but she hates it at that other school. So I'm like, I don't want to emotionally traumatize this girl and give her a good education and she turns out to be whack and then I don't like her. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yo, that's a real problem. <laughs> but now she's over here at this other school. She's getting limited educational access. All the white kids are on top. She's getting vilified for being in all the white kids' classes. This is old ass stuff. Like, oh, you, you do want to act white now? Really? Really? We've already been through the, the black president, but that's what we got to deal with at home. I think that that's the manifestation of what you're saying. Okay. Uh, hello. I 
just want to give you some background on myself before I ask my question. Oh, also, thank you so much for your talk. I feel like you said a lot of things today that I've been struggling with myself, but didn't have, didn't know how to put into context and into words. Um, my name is Sarani James. I am an undergrad, a uh, freshman at the Macaulay Honors College at Hunter. Um, before that, I went to Bronx Science, and I know you used the Stuyvesant example, but obviously I'm very grateful for having gone to Bronx Science, but I was one of 25 black kids in my freshman class. And by the time we graduated, our graduating class was like 700 kids. And, um, and going through Bronx Science, I had a lot of, um, like people at Bronx Science like to say we don't have a race problem, but that's very much not true because even if people don't say things specifically about black and Hispanic people, it's clear in the way they talk about the Bronx. They're like, oh, the Bronx is too dangerous. You spent four years coming here, but you only want to come to this school and you don't want to interact with anything else around it. And I um, live in East Chester, very end of the five train, and my neighborhood, my middle school was District 11, considered the worst school district in the city. And it's interesting to me because I go to Bronx Science and I went to Bronx Science and I end up defending, um, I've been put in a position where I've had to defend affirmative action, I have to defend all of the Bronx, all stuff like that. And then I come back to my own neighborhood and I noticed that even though I don't want to, I brought some of that prejudice with me. Like, oh, I won't talk about this with my friends because they don't even care. And some of it is me kind of giving up. And other parts are like, I've been badgering my best friend to get a bank account for like a year. And I can't get her to do that. So how do we, my question to you is how do we make sure that we're not just pushing institutions to accept more black and Hispanic people into themselves, but also pushing black and Hispanic people to see that we have a bright future and we can do it as well. How do we push people to see that there's not, it's not just your own neighborhood and the Jordans and the designers clothes and stuff like that, that you can be that, that education is important and you can be that person on top as well. Man, I love it. If I was close, I'd put my hand on your shoulder. Uh, <laughs> brother, do that for me, please. <laughs> I, what I really, really appreciate about your question is that it, it expresses intimately the depth of the problem. Because what you're talking about is the personal experience of these challenges that we can theorize about and how complicated it is. I think that that duality that you have raised is one of the most painful parts of the process, particularly for high-achieving black students, Hispanic students, irrespective of their background, the toggling of the worlds. There's a class implication of that as well, as you well know. Like if you're coming from conditions of poverty, wherever they may be, and then you end up in these kind of upper echelon things, you don't know how to operate there. And then you feel that you have to be translating between one and the other. And for black people in particular, it has the added sense of you are not, uh, you're no longer viable and authentic 
as if there is some authenticity of what a black identity means. But the burden of carrying that is exactly what you articulate. There isn't an answer to that, but I think the reason that it's so important for you to bring that up here is because the nature of the segregated kind of environments that all of us come from, there are very limited opportunities for that to be shared with people who are not like you. So when you're explaining that to me, I'm like, yeah, I got it. Like, it doesn't need explanation. But for people who, for whom that's not the case, it does need explanation. And I also think the quivering in your voice at the beginning explains how deeply painful this thing can be. And I also want to say there, too, I commend you for doing it, because that kind of raising of this issue, particularly for somebody like you, who is as high as achieving as you are, and are carrying that burden and that fight at the same time that you're having to perform at the highest level at this honors college, at the same time that you have to represent all these black people who come from Bronx Science, at the same time that you're trying to have to represent all these people from up at the end of the five train, like that's an enormous amount of responsibility that you're carrying behind you. But if I'm coming to you in your CS class, I'm like, yo, do your work. And you're like, you know how tired I am? You know what I mean? <laughs> like you have no idea what you're asking me to do. And I think that raising that humanizes what we're actually trying to do. So again, I want to stop for a moment. <laughs> I don't have an answer to you, though. Thank you. <laughs> um, the reason I wanted to get up and share is because um, we don't have answers really to that. But um, I work for CS4ALL. I'm the computer science education manager for the Bronx, um, District 7, 9, and 10. So I kind of have an idea. <laughs> of what you're talking about. My background is also very similar to yours. I'm from the Bronx, um, born in Dominican Republic, um, and just try to do my best. And carrying the responsibility is important. Um, and so one of the things that I know that has been very effective with how you know, we get to the, to the schools and get to the students is by radically changing the community, um, by providing them with that vision that we're trying to see. So what I'm trying to say is that students from the Bronx understand where they can go, and I say this all the time, um, for, to, to play basketball. They understand where to go to, to do art and dance, but they don't really see where they can go and do CS or computer science related activities because it's not in our culture. And so if we start there by providing the smallest ways to like give them that experiences, it would be helpful. It will go a long way. I, I try to make sure that I focus on culture, that I, I'm out there. I'm at the, the, the events, um, boogie on the boulevard, <laughs> having a table, hosting it, um, sharing things out with parents. I had a parent workshop the other day so they can be aware of what's going on, how CS works, um, and things like that. And hopefully what that does is um, just, you know, shift perspective and start everybody's included into what's going on and not just in the school, but it lives outside the school building, um, in the playgrounds, um, you know, at the project buildings as well. So that's my two cents. Appreciate I didn't really have a question for you. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> I appreciate it. But I, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was scared of the Bronx too. That was all good. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks. Hi, Kamau. Uh, first, I just want to acknowledge uh, from the last speaker, I think the New York City Department of Education has done an amazing job of what we all aspire to in hiring people to lead this movement who represent the communities that we're actually serving. And so I just want to thank the New York City team and uh, all of their 
project managers and all the people who are working here for doing the hard work of looking beyond the easy hires to find the people who truly are representative and can bring that kind of heart every day. And here comes Debbie, so uh, who helped build that team. Um, Kamau, thank you for giving me constantly new ways to talk about the difference between participation, the number and color of butts and seats at the margins, and the outcomes we really want for this world. Um, and I wrote down my question because I think in our greatest hopes for CS education, uh, it's not just about somehow computer science will magically make us better in the other things. But I think one of the most important ways that I know to, to close gaps is to identify them. We, we wouldn't be running at all of this if we weren't measuring how few women were in technology. And the fact that we're measuring it incorrectly means that we're not running at it, perhaps in the ways that can change it in the biggest. Um, I wanna share a story. We started the Academy for Software Engineering here in New York City in 2012. And CS actually exposed a critical literacy gap in the students. So in the computer science class, um, we saw the students were able to read a paragraph of text that literally described a piece of code next to it and draw a line from the sentence to the code line that mapped it. And that let us know that there was a critical literacy gap that was emerging from students being able to connect anything back into the text that they were reading. And it opened up a whole new way to revisit the literacy education because it wasn't the standard way we taught literacy. It wasn't the standard way we assessed it. And so what do you think about computer science not only magically closing these other academic gaps, but actually giving us a context where we can find the way it's broken that isn't emerging in these standardized tests that are biased and racist and all of the things that make us double down on the stuff that doesn't work. Well, I appreciate that context. And I also think that the, the level of sensitivity that you bring to it is indicative of the kind of attention that we have to have to detail. I think uh, NSF, as you probably know, when the STEM plus C solicitation came out, the whole premise was to use the standard STEM fields to catalyze the instruction of computing education. And those are some of the things that surface there. I think that as a basic premise, I agree with you 100% that this, this may be one of the ways that computing can be innovative in ways that mathematics and our approach to that wasn't. However, if you just again think historically, the analogy there was that when you're doing word problems, we'd surface that kids couldn't read, so they couldn't get to the mathematics because they couldn't read. So the innovation I think there is uh, consistent with the exposure of other problems through the basic technical education that we're trying to deliver. So that just requires being uh, courageous, I think. I think it is an aptitude uh, that is critical for doing that. But I also think that because mathematics is so ubiquitous, the answer to your question to me is that it's more effective through math, but probably can be more creative through computing. And the creative, the creative part, I think, is where our largest opportunity lies. But the, the lack of access to computing itself makes it limited in its ability to be effective in that regard. Hi, uh, Jackson Collins, um, Associate Executive Director at Prep for Prep. Um, one, I want to thank you for, for sharing today and also want to thank our friend from Macaulay Honors College. Um, I, I work on the margin of really, really talented black and brown children. And um, we've done a 
good job with the, we've done as best we could with the tension piece of being a black and brown child at an affluently, a white affluent independent school. Um, my, my question is more practical in that um, preface behind the, the curve in terms of adding CS to our curriculum. You know, we do a good job with math and science and in modern language. I'm just wondering from the room how I can, what I should use to expose these brilliant children. All children are brilliant, but these exceptionally brilliant children that we have at prep to be able to enter the spaces um, with their white peers, <clears throat> excuse me, who have been doing this CS work for, for years. I get feedback from our alumni who are very, very successful in, in tech. They're saying, hey, I'm really successful, but I wish I had been exposed, exposed to this earlier. So we're trying to figure out what to install. Um, so that's one thing. Sec secondly, my fancy degree um, actually studied the experiences of students of color in independent schools. So um, if you want to understand the narrative and, and see the statistical connections and correlations between this experience, I'd be happy to share that for anyone who's, who's wondering as well. I appreciate the question. I think one of the things, the benefits of the conference itself uh, is to try to answer that very question. So based on whatever the educational structure is that you're coming from, what are the most amenable ways to introduce computing at what level? Because there are a lot of specifics behind what you're asking. So I think this is one of the places where you have kind of the best to engage in with that. Uh, and to the second point that you raise, you know, uh, I think that those schools, by virtue of the endowments that they have, the, uh, the force of their ability to be innovative, you can get the best. Uh, in an experience like that. So, and I also appreciate your offering to uh, share the experiences of students in those schools. Okay. Um, I was wondering a little bit, um, I work in special education in high school, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on special education as an instrument of institutional racism. Um, what I notice... And I know it's true across the country. You know, I'm sitting in a room with 18-year-old high school freshmen, right, who are not dumb. My, my kids are smarter than half the folks in this room, I'll tell you that. Um, but they haven't had access. I mean, they've gotten 18 years being crapped on by the system. It's no wonder that they're not interested in college, you know, what do we do with those kids? How do we teach them? And what opportunities do they still have at this point? Well, there too, and I appreciate, uh, you know, the force with which you are obviously committed. Uh, the specific pathways for students with special needs is beyond my professional experience for sure, so let me preface it by saying that. But I also think that what you're seeing, as you pointed out at the outset, is the outcome of the activity of marginalization. It's not by coincidence that you'll find disproportionate numbers of black boys in particular in those special needs classes, Hispanic boys in particular in those special needs classes. And then the corollary to that is in Atlanta, there are double the number of white kids in the gifted program than there are black kids. And I'm like, yo, there's no way that double the number of white four-year-olds are gifted than the number of black four-year-olds. You can't convince me, particularly being black. So I think that what you're exposing is the, the symptoms of the way that marginalization takes place. The specific things that you're asking about, about pathways and exposure and so on, 
here too, I think, is a benefit of a, of a gathering like this. I mean, Maya Israel is here. She deals with students in computing who have special needs and so on. But special needs is not necessarily the same as the trap that you're talking about. Some of those kids don't have special needs. They're just black, and they just put them in there. So that's different. But I think that we just even exposing the sensitivity about how that manifests itself is something that collaboration could be helpful towards. Hi, I'm Bill. I'm going to give you a little bit of context real quick. Um, so right before this, I was uh, doing a graduate degree uh, in chemistry because I wanted to be a professor and I wanted to teach. And thank you so much for sharing your story because stories like that are the reason that I chose not to pursue that. Um, at the university level, there's a different conversation than K through 12. Students, when they go through K through 12, they're being taught by amazing, wonderfully trained teachers. They're trained teachers. And then when you get to the university level, and I apologize to anybody who works at the university level here, you're in this room because you're wonderful. Who's not in this room? And that's who you have to deal with. Those people who are not in this room who don't have pedagogical education. So what do you do when suddenly you do get everybody in K through 12, these students ready to go in an equitable way, and they go into the university system where those biases still exist and they cannot be corrected? How do you have somebody, you know, you're charging someone as a freshman to be brave when they weren't ready or trained to. How, how do you start addressing that? What, do you, what did you bring me here for? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you raise a good point. I mean, that's a huge systemic challenge that you're talking about right there. Um, uh, my response is that I don't have the operational definition of how you do that. But I would say that the presumptions about the rigor and expertise of K-12 teachers is not fully true. Equally, the assumption about the expectations of faculty is not fully true. But I think in the context of what we're discussing here relative to computing education, I think the part that's most meaningful if we extract from that is making sure that the technical kind of education that we're offering is contextualized in a broader educational objective. And that's where I think some of the discord comes in. Because you can find people with highly uh, developed pedagogical methodologies in technical fields who are bereft of any social context of how this all takes place. And that's true K through all the way. So with our responsibility, I think, as we're going about the practice of developing more improved and rigorous computing education for all the various populations of students that we're talking about, to me, one of the purposes of code and beyond, beyond what? Beyond training towards education. So that's where I think we can kind of galvanize the work that we're doing in meetings like this to address the problems that you just raised. Thanks. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk. I'm Debbie Marcus. Uh, I know a lot of folks in this room. I uh, founded CS for All in New York City, working for the New York City Department of Education, where I worked for 13 years, and recently left to join Cornell Tech and Whitney uh, three months ago. Um, leaving the Department of Education sort of frees me up to say some things that I may never have been able to say previously. Um, turn the mics off, turn the mics off. <laughs> but um, I want to think a, a bit about the role of institutions. And um, I founded CS for All, having been at the Department of Education for a long time. And 
uh, you were talking about making a pro we had a choice about making a program expanded through the DOE or requiring it and equity was really important and I insisted that this had to be something required for everybody otherwise we wouldn't actually reach everyone and as the white lady who started CS for All I was so proud of myself what a great thing I did for equity and it wasn't until my team many of whom are here probably two years in way past where we should have revolted thank you Christy Crawford, uh, revolted nicely, very nicely, um, and said, just because you have those bodies and seats, what the hell are we doing with them in those seats? We have to be much more mindful about the issues that we're talking about today. Otherwise, we really haven't done anything. Um, and so um, think about that in the context of last night, I was on a panel uh, with former Department of Education staff talking about education reform for undergraduate students interested in policy. And probably by the end of that panel, nobody was interested in policy because it was like PTSD. Everybody talking about what giant, chaotic, difficult role it is to work inside of the bureaucracies to make change. We all went there because we believed in equity, we believed in education reform, and working from within is really the the way you can actually impact scale. So you're not touching some students here, some students here. If we wanna make change for 1.1 million kids, changing the institution is the biggest vehicle to do so, but we all turn gray in the process. And so what I want to think about there, you know, my former team who are all still heroes working at the DOE, what is the role, and you worked at the NSF, so I'm assuming working inside the major institutions, you, you feel the same thing. What is the role of the outside organizations working with the institutions that really drive change and support the people from within who are trying to make change rather than we always talk about what a mess the DOE is and how, yes, we are, we're the perpetrators of the inequities, but they're also the heroes trying to fix it. So how can the outside organizations help those inside? I appreciate uh, your veteran status. <laughs> uh, the gray hairs. <laughs> I think uh, there's a rather... Errol, I don't see him right now. A friend of mine is kind of a mentor, but he raised this to me. Uh, and the framing is, if we're thinking about the tech sector alone, for example, like the FANGs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, et cetera, et cetera, like those companies are the power and situation of nation states. Google has a nearly trillion dollar evaluation as does Apple. I just came back. My family's all from Guyana and South America. Like the whole country, we, you know, like we're, we're a pittance next to these people. The entire Caribbean, the lesser and greater Antilles combined don't have a GDP anywhere close to any of those companies. So these are nation states. And it raises the question of citizenship. If you're a Google employee, for example, are you a citizen of Google or are you a citizen of the United States? It's not immediately clear which one you have more allegiances to or which one you derive more social benefits from, it's not obvious. But because of that, I think there's a unique opportunity for institutions like that, as, as, as much as they are critiqued, they are now in a position, for example, in coming to a city. Like when they were trying to come, Amazon was trying to come to Atlanta, uh, New York raised hell. But what most of the cities did was they just laid prostrate. They were like, please come to whatever city. I'll rename this capital after you. I'll redo the streets. I'll call it Amazon.com, City Atlanta. You know what I mean? Whatever. But what that tells you is that the municipal functions are weak relative to the power of these companies. So then if the responsibility of those who are inside these institutions, because I know that there are a lot of really, really committed people turning gray inside these institutions who want to do the things that we expect. 
even though we criticize them all the time. We know the people that are in there doing it. So now what the opportunity is, is those same, uh, your analog, for example, who works at one of these fancy companies, when they come into a city, they're like, we don't want to have the predictable outcomes of destruction and dislocation of the communities that are already there. So you, Madam School District person, you tell me what it is that you've been advocating for that you couldn't get. And me and my big muscles, now I'm going to come in and like, yo, if you want me to come, this is what we're going to do. And because you don't have the courage municipality to tell me on your own, I'm just going to, you just whisper it to me, and then I'll say to the city, this is the criteria for my investment and growth in your particular, in your particular city. And then we can align forces taking specific acknowledgement of the vastly different power differential that exists now than did 20 years ago. None of these companies existed in 1995. So what we have now is a unique opportunity where these individual companies who are purporting to have all this diversity goals and aims and whatever, whatever, whether or not it happens, but there's an enormous power differential that we're not necessarily tapping into with relationship to the kind of institutions that you're talking about. Thank you. Hi. So um, I'm a junior at Cornell. Um, I want to thank everyone for all the discourse. And this is the first time I've like sat in a space where like this conversation hasn't been shut down. And so <laughs> um, uh, I had a very similar experience to you. I went to Brooklyn Tech um, and now I go to Cornell. And as a freshman, um, when I went there, a lot of my like as a freshman there, like of a person of color, as a woman, I felt a lot of stereotype threat. I don't know if you guys know what stereotype threat is, but stereotype threat is when you are in an environment where people stereotype you and you start to believe these stereotypes. So I specifically remember going to a lecture my freshman year in like a general education course, like I think it was an investigative like biology lab. And someone's saying, like whispering to her friend, saying, like pointing at me and saying, she's only here because she brings diversity to our school. And I remember that haunting me for a really long time. It really impacted my freshman year performance. A lot of people would instantly think I couldn't speak English. It was very difficult for me. And people, it, it just like, and I was, it, brought, it got me to think like, how many other students feel this way? Like how many other students have been told that they're only here because they bring diversity to the school? And so it raises so many questions of how, how much of this is institutionalized, but how much of this is like our peers are pressuring us into believing this. And like the only way, I think like the only way we can combat this problem is if we start at a younger age to teach students that we, are, we can't force, like we don't have the power to control what ethnicity we are born into and what race we are born into. We have no power over that. But how do we teach students to support one another, to not assume that your race is going to impact like where you end up in life. And I feel like if we start at like such a young age where like we bring educational resources to these students, but we also teach them that we are all each other's like supporters, how do we do that? Like. <laughs> uh, move to Canada. I, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm starting all these things with, a, with an appreciation. So I, um, our age here matters. So I think you relative to me, relative to some older folks, you know, like we're, we're, we're generations now who have been articulating the same thing. So when I was at your stage and I'm asking, you know, these people like Cal, I don't understand why, da, 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 and they're looking at me like, yeah, you know, settle down, you'll be right. But what is uh, germane to the point that you raise 
is ultimately what I started out with. Like we're in a profoundly divisive and fractious country. So you showing up with a hijab and being brown skin or whatever, there are all kinds of stereotypes about you, especially now. And if we just acknowledge the impact that that has, the stereotype threat that you're talking about is also something that we're all generally familiar with. Because again, for folks, and I'm not even old, but for folks my age, like we've been in this game for a long time, it seems, and Claude Steele and the whistling Vivaldi and all that. The, the challenge with it, I think, is it, it's so ingrained in who we are as American residents, independent of citizenship. Let me give you another example that often doesn't come out in public. When we're talking about diversity with black people, for example, they have this group now called Eidos, uh, African descendants of slaves. And they want to split the black community and say, well, y'all immigrants like me are not the same as the black Americans who've been here forever. And that all this diversity statistics and whatever, whatever, in places like Berkeley and these other fancy schools, most of the black students that they have are immigrants or the children of immigrants. They're Nigerians, they're West Africans, they're Caribbean students, et cetera. So you're not finding regular black American people from Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, et cetera, the black belt, Southern Virginia to Eastern Texas. So what does that mean? Even there, there are the divisions that you're talking about. So as a child of immigrants, black Americans in my own household are vilified, where they're like, hmm, these black Americans have been here all this time, they get all these privileges, and what are they doing? But meanwhile, we show up, and we're getting to do all these amazing things. So every, every generation that comes here is reinforced with the same set of stereotypes. Immigrants, whether, wherever you come from, whether you're black or not, as long as you're not black American, you're good, because those people are at the bottom. And those are the things that have been generationally reinforced over and over again. The immigrants that have not uh, been black but are white, they too, they show up as Italians or Jews from wherever they come from, but then all of a sudden, they're just magically white. They can just elevate above. The rest of us can't. And so that kind of thing is not something that we have an easy answer to because it's part of the definition of the country. The inoculation to stereotype threat in the classroom is to offer the opposite. You, because of your particular background, are capable of doing this thing. You just say it. Because that's how the stereotype works in the opposite way. They just tell you that you can't do it. Well, girls who are Muslim tend to not learn. They don't go to school. They don't have history of it, whatever, whatever. You believe it, and then, bam, you're not doing well. It's just an expression. So the inoculation is the counter-expression. Because of all the challenges that you've been through, because of all the resources and the cultural fortification that you have, you are most likely to be successful because of the background that you have. You believe it, and then off you go. Getting students to do that with each other is kind of the challenge of our time. The extent to which there were classroom leaders and uh, leaders of groups of students, you have to facilitate that dialogue. You have to push it. Even in my own daughter's school, and I'll stop talking here, but in my own daughter's school, one of the things that she was saying to me is that the black kids, well, they have this expression where they're like, yo, I'm slow. They say it Southern style, I can't do it, but whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm slow, I don't, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but she said herself, she's 15, and I, you know, I'm like, yo, my girl is the dopest. But, she said herself that the black kids say that when they're not doing well, like, yo, I'm slow, I can't do this. They say it themselves, but the white kids don't, and she noticed it. And then they, the black kids will tease each other. Well, yo, you know what I'm saying? I got 62, blah, 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 I'm slow. And then they're like, yeah, me too, don't trip, I got 58. And they're all like in a cesspool. Reinforcing the stereotype that you just articulated, 
and the white kids aren't doing it. So she herself said, I'm not playing. Like, I'm not calling anybody slow. I'm for damn sure not saying it about myself, because as you know, in my household, I'll punch you in the face. If she says she, she, she's slow, I'm going to knock you right out. But that, to me, is A, the consciousness of what you alluded to, and at least in her case, a direct action of not contributing to it. Because the idea of excellence among disparate groups of people is something that we don't necessarily have access to easily. So when we see it, we have to cherish it and hold them up. Like, yo, that kid right there is the truth. And push them up, as opposed to being like, yeah, you know, that nigga's slow. You know what I mean? I mean, let's just talk real talk. That's how it goes down in the school. So I think what you raise is a generational problem. It's going to be an increasing problem, particularly in this divisive political environment that we're in right now, as you well know, particularly you. So that's something that we all have to be conscious of as we translate the results of a meeting like this into our actual practices. So I really appreciate you bringing it up. So I just want to thank Kamal Bob for an unbelievable talk, the likes of which have not happened in this room before. So uh, thank you. Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.